This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Working in the field of spine care, I've come to learn it really is a results-oriented business. And almost everyone who comes through the office to see me and, and my colleagues is here for some relief, pain relief particularly. And we've covered a lot of different approaches to back pain and spine care on this podcast over the last two years. But sometimes when you're out there, and I know you're listening, sometimes you're just looking for some relief. And it's really amazing to have advanced techniques, advanced technologies that can literally provide that for you uh, when in the past it wasn't available. And that's why I'm so excited today. Welcome you all to the show. Uh, We're going to be interviewing my friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Sumich, about a real exciting novel technique. Uh, Andrew, who goes by Turtle. Turtle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sanjeev. Great to be back. I'm excited for this. Yes. And for those who may recognize his voice, uh, Turtle was on the show in the Kind of the beginnings, one of the first few episodes where we talked quite a bit about injections, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And for your reference, uh, it is the third most popular episode of Back Talk Doc behind the uh, ones about surgery that Dr. Smith and Cheadle did. So that's that's a pretty good feather in your cap, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the best non-surgical one. That's great. Absolutely. Okay, let me introduce you again for individuals who are listening for the first time. Turtle is a board-certified physiatrist uh, like myself. We actually uh, trained together in residency at the Charlotte Institute of Rehabilitation in Charlotte, North Carolina. Turtle's a graduate of Louisiana State University Medical School and uh, did a fellowship after residency in interventional spine care. And he's kind of, he's one of our go-to experts in the practice and really in the entire Charlotte region for interventional spine care. Uh, done in an evidence-based, responsible manner. He's also done quite a bit of uh, work. And one of the reasons I want to bring him on is he's really on the cutting edge. He's been involved in some research trials for uh, stem cell treatments for DIS. And I know you, and you like to look at new things. Yes, that's true, particularly in those challenging cases and challenging patients. And not not that the patients themselves are challenging, but the, the problem being challenging where a lot of times we know the issue know what's causing the pain, but don't really have a lot of good solutions or good options for that. And there's been some progress, in, in particularly in the low back pain part in the last few years that have really changed the game and, and changed our ability to help those people. It's not certainly for everybody that's ever had low back pain for whatever reason, but there certainly is a, a chunk of people and a chunk of um, patients that previously we didn't have a whole lot to offer that now we do. 
Right. So today's topic, uh, I'm going to be discussing with Turtle the concept of the intercept spinal procedure to help with uh, low back pain. And it's a novel technique. And he has been involved with this now for some time. And we've got some experience under our belts. And it's really worth uh, a conversation at this point in time. And I like to tell patients who come in with back pain and uh, who say to me, why can't we fix it? Is that I just personally feel like we're almost in the pre-antibiotic era of spine care still. Like when you and I are sitting back, looking back on our careers, we're going to see how far things have traveled. And you remember, Turtle, when gabapentin came out on the market and it was kind of like the big new thing to help with neuropathic pain. There, There are some of these tipping points as you go through your career in treating and helping patients. And I kind of feel like this intercept procedure, from what I've read and observed the work you're doing, it, this could be one of those. It is. And as we go through the thought process behind it and how it was developed, there was a, there's a little bit of like, oh my goodness, like, you know, I, for reference, I graduated from med school in 2001. And now that's 20 years ago. It's not that long ago. And all, a lot of the, not just the techniques and the development of the procedure, but some of the basic science behind it, some of the spinal anatomy behind it, we never got taught. I mean, there's, yep. there's journals in the in journal anatomy describing some of these things from like 2012. I mean, that's like, we hadn't figured everything out on the cadaver yet. And the answer is no, which is great in some ways because there's still more out there but does speak to the fact that we don't know everything and there is a ability to do more. Oh, that's, that's exactly correct. And let's do this. Before we jump into the procedure itself, I kind of want to walk people down just some background information so they can understand it better. In the world of spine care, and in particular interventional spine care, we often mention the phrase pain generator. So can you review that concept for the listeners? Sure, absolutely. And it's a really important concept. When we think about back pain, that's a symptom. That's not a diagnosis, right? And so lots of things can cause back pain, just like lots of things may be able to cause stomach pain. So you might have stomach pain because you ate some off food. You might have stomach pain because your you know, little brother punched you in your stomach when you were a kid. You might have it because you have appendicitis. And so obviously you would have to have different treatments to try to treat all those sources of stomach pain correctly. And the same applies for back pain. While a lot of it feels the same, lower back pain across the waist, maybe favor one side, maybe not. There's different things that can cause that pain. And how I think about it is while there's there's a myriad of causes of acute back pain, including soft tissue injuries, muscle spasm, muscle strains, ligament strains, those typically get better with conservative treatment or even just time often. And I think that the patient population we're talking about is this more chronic back pain, six plus months of back pain. It really just lingers and lingers and maybe waxes and wanes, but never really goes away. And from there, we've always thought of, you know, there's two, in, in terms of ruling out outliers such as tumors and fractures and those sorts of things in in the general degenerative spine world that we spend a lot of our time. We tend to think of the posterior column or the back part of the spine, which is essentially made up of the facet joints, so the little joints in the back part of the spine. 
for the anterior column, the front part of the spine, which is where the disc and the vertebrae are. And for the longest time, we knew that or we hypothesized that the disc could hurt. Somebody would have a degenerative disc disease and it would cause pain. We weren't very good at treating it, but it did cause pain. We also knew that the facet joints could cause pain in, in the same way that your knee or your hip or any other joint might cause pain. And we were pretty good at treating that. But identifying which one of those structures is the biggest source of pain is really important because you got to know which one to treat. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a good review. And it just speaks to, with regards to low back pain, how complex it can be and difficult it can be to figure out where the pain is coming from. And that's why a multidisciplinary approach is often the best. You know, our physical therapist will work on the muscle ligamentous fascial pain. MRI studies look at the health of the discs, the facet joints, or as we call kind of the knuckles of the spine, the spinal canal. But also they do give you information about literally the vertebral body. And in this case, what you've been focusing on with this procedure is the vertebral end plate. For those who don't know anything about the spine, explain to them what an end plate is. So the end plate is, in the simplest form, it's the end of the bone. But it's more importantly to understand, I think, it is the part of the vertebrae. So the vertebrae is the bony part of the spine. And in between each vertebrae is the disc, which is a cartilage structure, kind of the cushion or the shock absorber of the spine. Where that disc meets the vertebrae is the end plate. And so that's the bony end plate. It's a bony structure where it interfaces with the disc. Right. And you are absolutely right. When we were in residency, I mean, we looked at MRIs and we would see these signal changes in the end plates. And I didn't really think much of it other than it's just a sign of aging and wear and tear. And that thinking has definitely evolved and the anatomy has been teased out. But before Intercept came on the market, what kind of are the procedural options patients can look at or be considered for when they present with just back pain without without the pain going down the leg? What have you been offering your patients up until you got into this? So sure, and that is an important part that we are kind of distinguishing this is just the back pain, not the leg pain or the radiating pain, radicular pain. So we, you know, they, early on we start with that kind of conservative bucket, which is with time, education, some sort of rehabilitation program, usually physical therapy directed, transitioning to a home program. Medications can play a role in that area as well. Also, complementary things with nutrition, chiropractic treatment, acupuncture, all can play a role in that initial treatment. As symptoms persist or don't respond is when we typically have imaging with MRI being the gold standard, and then we get into those interventional procedures, and that's where the pain generator matters, right? Where we put medicine matters in terms of what's hurting or not. There's that facet-oriented pain, which can you can inject facet joints. There's, there's a procedure called radiofrequency ablation to treat more chronic facet pain. And then there's traditional epidural injections, which, as you know, Sanjeev, don't do a great job for just traditional back pain, but admittedly, we probably do them sometimes with a lack of a better option. The other, beyond interventional procedures, traditionally would have been surgical offerings, but that is either disc replacement or fusion, which oftentimes 
fits into that category where the solution is worse than the problem. It certainly can be. And in fact, I just had a conversation this morning with a uh, patient in terms of injections and indications for an epidural, and there just wasn't one. And her main presentation was quite simply axial or, or non-radiating back pain. So it was a, it was a bit of a difficult conversation, uh, Turtles, because the expectation was, and I know a lot of you out there are listening, you're, you're in pain, you're in discomfort, and you're hopeful that an injection or procedure can eliminate that. But as you just kind of clearly defined, it really matters where you're injecting because an injection can be done correctly, technically, and be perfect. But if you're injecting around a structure where the pain is not coming from, it will not help you. And that is a conversation I have quite frequently with people. It, it is challenging. Um, and it's not, it's, it's a challenging conversation, but it, it, and it's not a fun conversation to have because we want to help people. Absolutely. Right? We want to yeah. have something to offer. But to do a procedure, even as, you know, quote, as safe the injections are, that is unnecessary isn't the right thing to do. And it's just going to lead to disappointment. Um, Anyway, and so those 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 are certainly are challenging cases, and I think you might run into this as well. Oftentimes, that patient perspective comes from a family member or a friend who might actually be your patient as well, and said, "Oh, you did that injection form, and they were better. I need that." Right. Well, that goes back to the pain generator, right? They might have very similar symptoms, but very different pain generators, and hence different treatment plans. I think a take-home is if you're listening, and, and we have a variety of people who enjoy this podcast. Um, there certainly are clinicians who listen, physical therapists, and mostly still, I think, potential patients. If you're suffering from back pain, a question that you should be trying to get answered is, why does my back hurt? Is there an ability to identify which structure is contributing to the pain? And that leads into uh, something positive here, some hope with this new procedure, the intercept procedure. So you've done a good job kind of breaking down the concept of pain generator. And we talked about facets and discs and ligaments. Let's dive right in. Okay, go ahead and um, give us like a general synopsis of what the intercept procedure is. And then we'll kind of go through some of the indications and and how you utilize MRI to help decide um, whether or not someone's a candidate. Absolutely. So I'll tell you what it is first, but then I think it's worth taking a step back and understanding how we got here why we treat it the way we do. So what the intercept procedure is, it is ablation. We're using radio frequency waves to ablate or burn the basivertebral nerve. The basivertebral nerve is a nerve that lives in the vertebrae that supplies those end plates we talked about earlier. It's an interventional procedure. It's done under x-ray, done under live fluoroscopy with a little nick in the skin. Not certainly not an open surgery, but probably a little bit more than just a traditional injection. And you use the x-ray to guide and tunnel down to the vertebral body for special tools to help create a track to the basivertebral nerve and eventually ablate it. Outpatient procedure, it is typically done under general anesthesia because that's how I've done all mine. Some people I know across the country are started doing it under what's called MAC, which is kind of a deep anesthesia. Uh, but, but regardless, it's a little bit more than just a regular injection. Now, where it comes from or why haven't we been doing this forever is I think it's worth the history. You mentioned earlier about those end plate changes on MRI that certainly we learned about in, in residency and even med school. And you said you never thought much of them. The reason you didn't think much of them because nobody 
we thought it was an interesting radiographic finding and with very little or zero clinical significance. Those changes, while now they're described for what they are, were actually first described by Michael Modick, who certainly don't know, but understand that he was a radiologist, I believe, at the Cleveland Clinic, who described those in the 1980s. And for decades, it was just an interesting finding that even a medical student could notice on an MRI, but didn't mean much. That began to change kind of the mid to early 2000s. So prior to that, we knew we had degenerative disc. We believed that it was a potential pain source and just couldn't treat it very well. A few things happened to change that perspective or, or, or change that thinking. The first one was Dr. Jeffrey Lotz, who's a PhD at UCSF, began to study cadaver vertebrae with modic changes versus non-modic changes, more normal end plates. And what he found is that the end plates of a damaged vertebrae, so with the modic changes, had two to three times the amount of pain receptors than a healthy end plate. So that starts the thinking of, well, wait a second, maybe something going on there that this end plate could actually cause pain and it's not just the disc. What also happened was that there was better understanding of the process of modic and what that actually represented on MRI. And the biggest thing is was that as the disc degenerates, this is a simplified version, but it's how I like to think about it it no longer is supplying as much cushion or protection of those end plates. Because of those end plates are very thin, they eventually can get these little cracks and fissures in there. Simultaneously, the disc is degenerating, and some of those proteins and contents of the nucleus of the disc can actually transfer across the end plates because of those cracks and fissures, and they cause this big inflammatory reaction in the vertebral body. And that is what Modic represents. There's different types of modics, but that for the for simplification, that represents this inflammation in the vertebral body. So now we know we've got inflammation, which certainly can hurt. We know it's innervated and actually overly innervated once it is in. And then the third thing that happened was a better understanding of the basal vertebral nerve. Now, the basal vertebral nerve, as I mentioned, that's the nerve we eventually ablate in the intercept procedure. But prior to the last 10 to 15 years, it we knew it existed. We just didn't realize it carried pain messages. They thought it was just a nerve strictly for bone health. They made the connection that it actually carries a, carries a pain message. So now we have a structure that can hurt. We know it's innervation. And then that started the plan for, hey, can we treat it? Can we target that nerve to help treat the pain coming from that structure? And that's a huge explosion in understanding. Gigantic. And so the biggest thing is we're treating an old symptom, the back pain. We are thinking about it totally different. It's not that we created a new widget to treat discogenic pain. It is a new understanding of what we thought was discogenic pain is actually or could be considered vertebrogenic pain, meaning coming from the vertebral body, not the disc. Sanjeev, I think it's important to clarify too is that this is still a degenerative disc problem, meaning the degenerative disc is, is the issue that triggers this cascade, but degenerative disc disease actually makes the vertebrae hurt rather than the disc itself hurt. Again, that's simplified because there probably still is some disc pain mixed in there, but it was a real jump that degenerative disc disease might actually cause the bony end plate 
to hurt rather than just the disc itself. So we've had this kind of new structure to treat and a totally new way to, to think about things. I kind of liken it to, I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy, but when I have patients that come in with knee arthritis and you can start to see that the cartilage between the bones is wearing down and now you see cystic changes in the bone. And I think a lot of people can understand the concept of bone on bone pain in the knee because the cartilage no longer provides that cushion. It's somewhat similar here, I think, is that you're not getting the shock absorption. The energy is transferring through the end plates now, which aren't really meant to absorb everything. And then you see inflammatory reactions now, what we weren't sure of in the past, but now it does appear to be like an inflammatory pain generating response. So that's how I kind of conceptualize it. And I got to tell you, I was looking back and preparing to talk with you today. I was looking through the company's website that designed this uh, intervention at the research that's put out there and the SMART trial in particular. What really struck me is, and, and you and I have looked at industry-sponsored research and stuff like that over many, many years, and sometimes you're a bit skeptical about it, and then you check the source and the journals that it's published in. But what I couldn't get past is how this SMART trial, long-term relief for five years. Like, there's literally nothing that I think in the world of spine care that I can look someone in the eye and say it's been researched and followed for that duration of time for um, showing efficacy, uh, not just with pain, but with function. So I don't know if this is real data, and I'm sure it remains to be seen if it's going to be replicated and even in the real world. But that's just staggering. It is. And there's, there's really no studies that I'm aware of either that has that type of follow-up. Uh, they published the five-year follow-up. And I think even the average, the mean follow-up was actually 6.4 years. Their second randomized control trouble study called the Intracept study, just so that first SMART study referred to was a randomized controlled study blinded against placebo. So against a sham procedure, and then the follow-up study was a was also randomized and controlled trial that was against standard of care. So basically, the things we had been doing up to that. That data, uh, the twelve months has been published, and I think that the twenty-four month has been presented, but not published yet. You know, it should be. So it's it's holding up, and that really is unprecedented. So, dude, this is a good time too because I, I always try to preempt people's questions or what might be confusing to them is we've mentioned ablation a couple of times now and the, the intercept procedure is an ablation to the basopartibial nerve. We have been doing, also been doing ablation, radiofrequency ablation to those lumbar facet joints, the kind of back of the spine. That has been going on for decades and is well established and does a really good job if the pain's coming from the facet joints, but of course doesn't do a good job if it's not. The lumbar facet ablation, which I would say most people are more familiar with, or if you're just in a you know regular community environment and we're talking to a friend who said, oh, I had my back ablation to my back. At this point, it, they, they most certainly would have had a facet ablation. Those nerves regenerate. And so, it is expected that lumbar facet ablation would need to be repeated. That's not the case with the intercept procedure, hence the durable pain relief. The reason being is that the nerve does not regenerate because it is in the vertebral body and it's unmyelinated. 
which means it has, doesn't have the traditional coating that some nerves have, so it makes it difficult to regenerate. Thank you for pointing that out. That's a very important distinguishing feature of this procedure that I wasn't quite aware of, so I appreciate you sharing that. I know you've piqued people's interest if they followed along this far into the episode, and there are people listening saying, I wonder if I'm a candidate for this. So break down uh, real quick kind of who is the ideal person to have a discussion about this procedure? So I would tell you that it, so this procedure was got FDA approval in 2016 and started with being used commercially in 2018 and really ramping up in the last two years. The official requirements or, FD, or indications for the procedure based on the FDA approval is six months of chronic low back pain with six months of failed conservative treatment. And so that would include anything that we're used to seeing, physical therapy, medication trials, home exercises, injections. And then with these modic end plate changes, and they're indicated from the L3 through the S1 vertebrae. So basically the three bottom discs are qualified. So that is got to fall in that category to, 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 to meet the indications of procedure. Now, I know that's kind of a lot of wordy medical talk. Well, practically, what this patient typically looks like is somebody that's dealt with back pain for a long time. It's usually way more than six months. It's usually more like three, four, five, six years. It is a chronic, persistent low back pain that waxes and wanes. They, for the most part, they live with it. They feel it every day, but they can live, they can work, they can play, they can work out. They maybe not just be able to do it as hard or as much as they used to want to. They might be subject to a couple of more intense flare-ups once or twice a year that they have to get through, but it is this kind of chronic background low back pain. The classic presentation is a sitting intolerance. These people hate to drive. They hate to be on an airplane. Uh, sitting in a long dinner can be difficult. Uh, they tend to be better if they can change positions a lot. Another question I've begun to ask people to screen them, and, and this was actually reverse engineered because I had a, a couple of patients that came in after the procedure and I you know, asked them how they were doing. And the first thing they told me was uh, like a week into it, I sat up in bed without pain for the first time. And so I started screening patients with that question of, of asking them, can you sit up in bed or do you have to do the log roll out of bed? Once you're out of bed, who's putting on your socks and shoes? <laughs> you're asking somebody to do it for you or you have to get on the floor to do it. So that's another kind of screening thing for that. The terminology has been thrown around vertebrogenic pain, anterior column pain. But what we used to think of as discogenic pain, those are the type of characteristics that'll the, the presentation. For the most part, while there's no age limit um, other than being skeletally mature on the young end and then just being healthy enough to stand the procedure on the older end, I would say the, the kind of sweet spot is that 40 to 50-year-old person with one to two level degenerative disease. If you've had surgery, micro surgery, does that disqualify you from something like this? No, not at all. The microdiscectomy, laminectomy, even at the, the target level does not disqualify you. Those patients were included in the studies, and so they are also indicated for the procedure. Oftentimes, you, you've seen these patients, Sanjeev, where they, you have a herniated disc, that pinch nerve, have the microdiscectomy, and, and they generally do really well, leg pain's better. And then, you know, six, 12 weeks later, they start having this debilitating back pain. 
and then you look and they either had or have developed noted changes. And certainly we've had, I probably had five or six patients within that kind of presentation where the surgery took care of the leg pain, the pinched nerve pain, but the back pain was still there. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, it's exciting to just sit here thinking and listening to you. Help me understand kind of where you see, we'll touch on a few things. So I want you to touch on, because I know initially you are observing the state of the union in terms of insurance coverage. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And then also where you kind of see this procedure heading as far as kind of acceptance in the world of spine care and where it fits into our treatment algorithms. Sure. It is a new procedure, and because of that, it can be a challenge to get it approved. As you know, FDA approval is a big step, but does not guarantee or mean that any insurer has to, has to pay for it. And, and like with most new technologies, they tend to fight it and try not to pay for it. And to be fair, oftentimes new technologies don't work, so they kind of want to see it out there for a little bit, let somebody else pay for it and see if this really sticks or not. And so it, it is a battle. It can get approved. It just immediately kind of goes into usually an appeal state. The parent company, Relevian, is, is motivated to get these things approved, obviously. You know, one, to try to help people, but two, they want to continue to grow. And so they do the heavy lifting in terms of writing letters and setting up you know, like a peer-to-peer discussion or even a outside review that sometimes I'll get involved with. But that process takes, we used to say two or three months. It's actually taken about three months now. Uh, so it takes time. And so it's not a matter of like, you know, show up in the office, you're a great candidate. Let's do this next week. It, it does require some patience and some frustration at times. But usually they're getting about 70 to 75% approval across the country. And that number is just gently ticking upwards. The real world experience. So I did my first one of these. I, I got engaged with it in the summer of 2019. And by the time I did the training and got our first patient through the approval process, it was January of 2020. So we're going on two years of experience now and approximately 40 patients in our practice. And people are getting better. It's working. I think the, the, the results are very consistent with the findings in the SMART trial to where people you know, there's about a third of the patients that are just total home runs, like come in pain-free, which never happens in our world. And then another big chunk of those patients, 75%, getting at least 50% relief. And then about 50% getting about uh, 60, 60 to 70% relief. So really good results with a decent chunk of those just, you know, complete home runs. And that's holding up. So I bring that up to answer the question about where is it heading in the treatment paradigm, I think it's going to be, it's going to become a, a, a standard of treatment for degenerative changes, degenerative disc disease with the motive changes, I should say, in the clinical presentation that fits. It's just working for this subset of patients, and it's going to be hard to it. I'll throw a wild card at you here. It occurs to me, when we see patients that come in that have back pain and they have the modic end plate change, Working with our neurosurgical colleagues, many of them will look at the end plate changes as a sign of spinal instability and a potential indicator for lumbar fusion. So do you consider this procedure to be a potential alternative to lumbar fusion, or where do you think it fits in comparative to that? So can I answer be sort of? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's back yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, right. And so... 
if there is true instability, it's not going to fix that. And so if there is significant end plate changes and significant facetophoropathy that causes movement and you take care of the end plate pain, it's not going to take care of all of the pain that person would likely be feeling. The other thing that it doesn't do is it doesn't stabilize or stop degeneration. So if somebody has narrowing of their foramen where the nerves exit as a result of the, the, the degenerative changes and collapse of the disc, that can become symptomatic and cause some of the more leg pain and obviously it wouldn't help, help those symptoms. While really advanced degenerative changes are not necessarily a contraindication, the patients that seem to do well are on the more beginning and or earliest stages of the degeneration. In earlier stages of generation, that happens for five years, right? And so not necessarily just new pain, but like they don't have super advanced degenerative disease and therefore not really in that in, in unstable or in, in instability category. So a lot of our surgeons, to their credit, they have patients that they can certainly justify fusion and quite honestly would probably do well fusing, especially the anterior approach in those, in those lower, the L5 is one that the disc, but we'll refer them if people want to try to avoid an operation and, they, and, and those patients will do well and it kind of saves them a, a surgery and saves them, you know, potential trouble down the line with adjacent level disease from the, from the fusion. Well, it's pretty exciting. You know, I look at back pain treatment as almost like a funnel where you know, at the top, the widest part of the funnel, people are going to get really well with some of the things you mentioned, the PT, the chiropractic, uh, holistic treatments. And as, as you know, they kind of come down that funnel, they get into injections. And I feel like the tip of the funnel is more the lumbar fusion. And this might be right before that. I don't know, though. There could be a tidal wave of people coming in over the next five years seeking providers who provide this and offer this service. So, you know, this podcast is for informational purposes only. I really strive to get the information out to the listeners so they can be informed and make their own decisions. But this certainly is quite exciting. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you kind of being the tip of the spear on these sort of evolving um, options to help our patients. Well, thank you for that. And it, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. And it is, it is exciting, especially when it's really gratifying when you can really provide people relief that I had a young lady who was in her thirties that we did the, the week before Christmas. So she just came back in and she was a crossfitter before and she hadn't been able to really work out with any, any kind of vigor in two to three years. And she had come in for a two week follow up and said she did a squat the day before for the wow. first time pain free in two years and was anxious to try a box jump. I said, let's wait a while on that. But right. you know, that that's a that's a real tangible thing. And just two other points that, that I think before we, we move on is that are important. One is we just talked about the funnel. This is a this has been a really effective treatment for the right patient. And not everybody's not that the, the, the right patient for the right diagnosis and the right pain generator. So it's not, again, just it's worth repeating. It's not for all low back pain. It's not going to help every ache and creak that you might have ever had. But there is definitely something worth exploring that didn't exist five years ago and that, might, that does exist now. The second part is this does not, the procedure does not leave anything in you or take anything out of you in terms of changing your anatomy. So it doesn't burn any bridges in terms of future treatment. So if a patient were to need 
you know, certainly future injections, but needed a surgery, whether it's a decompressive surgery or, or fusion down the line, all that remains on the table. The other thing that I think that's important too, at least in my mind, is, you know, I, I still think there's a bit of a golden goose out there of trying to regenerate the disc with whatever, whether it be stem cells or some other, uh, some other method. We're not tampering with the disc in any way. So it wouldn't preclude any of these patients from, from, you know, conceivably having that sort of treatment down the line if it ever came to fruition and actually worked. Are there downsides to it? It's been remarkably, the safety profile is remarkable. I think the downside is it's procedure, right? And it's, it's, it's general anesthesia. So there's always risk involved or potential risk involved with that. Post-surgical or post-procedure, it's a, some soreness for a couple of days, but relatively mild. That's not it. Whenever we're accessing the spine, there's always a risk of causing some one fracture to the vertebrae itself as we, as we trans, transition across some of the bone to get into the cubal body. I've not had that happen, but that was, they did, they did have one case in the SMART trial that referred to that caused a fracture. It did heal on its own, but still a fracture nonetheless. The biggest conceivable risk, like in my mind, of, of, of like when I'm doing these procedures, we're like, hey, this is really what you don't want to do, is while there's certainly a safe path, obviously, to access where the basal nerve is, it runs right by the spinal canal and it runs right by where the spinal nerves exit the spinal canal. So it's really important technique-wise and using good uh, imaging to not do that, basically. And so right. that is where the potential risk involves, but again, we take real good care and, and not to do that. Great. Thank you for sharing that because I know there's, there's always another side of the coin and I think it's important we, we share that information. All right, my friend. I mean, that was a pretty robust 40-minute discussion on this procedure. We're going to link to the um, Intercept Procedure website in our show notes. That's not from our group, but it's um, Relevant Metasystems, I think. Relevant, yeah. yeah Relevant. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for people who are interested in learning more. And as you know, I always like to, unfortunately, torture my guests and kind of pick their brain before they go about their health habits because I'm a health geek and not obsessed with it. And you gave us some really good tips. If I remember on your first interview, you talked a little bit about some meditation practices. And man, a lot has changed in the world since you and I last did a podcast episode. And I'd like to know what's been the biggest health tool, whether it's mental health, physical health, that's helped you persevere through this pandemic. I have probably tripled the amount of yoga I'm doing during the pandemic. Wow. And not that that was, and that, that just went from one day a week to probably three days a week. Yeah. But, and part of that was my previous yoga practice was always doing it in a class in an environment. And I, I valued that. I kind of, I valued the community. Well, when that was, I wasn't available at least for the first six or eight weeks, I, found a couple of YouTube, you know, places that were, were good and and have sort of developed a habit of doing that. I used to always be like, it was a, I would do an hour class and that was it. If I couldn't do that, I didn't do it. I'd have all these kind of options of, you know, 40-minute classes and 30-minute classes and 75-minute classes that you can always kind of sneak it in. And I've found that that has helped a lot. I'm still meditating. And then one of, there's a, 
there's a YouTube class that's for a 19 minute thing with just fine five sun salutation A's and five sun sun salutation B's, and it it makes a world of difference. <laughs> in the mornings or maybe I didn't get up early enough to get a workout in or to do a full class. If I could just make time to do that for whatever reason, I guess it's actually not for whatever reason. There's lots of established reasons. It's just a little bit easier. It's a for my day. It's a little bit easier to not get too worked up when things want to get me worked up and just to have a little bit more perspective. That's great. And again, take home there is be nice to yourself, even just a little bit of uh, progress is something you should be proud of, particularly in this day and age. So, all righty. I really enjoy the conversation and um, can't wait to hear more over the next few years, how this evolves. And thanks for your time today, Turtle. You bet. Thanks for having me and listening to me. You can tell I'm kind of into this and and excited for what it'll hold for some people. All right, my friend, you take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.